0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books across a broad range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Steven Yablo, Professor of Linguistics and Philosophy at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His new book, Aboutness, is just out from Princeton University Press. A day after Yablo bought his daughter, Zena ice cream for her birthday, Zina complained, "'You never take me for ice cream anymore.'" Yablo, like most of us, initially responded that this was obviously false. But he also thought that Zena said something true about their regular activity of going for ice cream, and that she expressed this truth by saying something false. This phenomenon is common in ordinary conversation, but it's quite strange from a standard view of semantics, according to which Zena's statement would have a truth condition, and if the truth condition isn't met, the sentence is false, and that's the end of it. Yablo argues instead that this sort of example reveals an aspect of semantics that standard views are inadequate to capture, the fact that sentences are about subject matters and that their subject matters may be constrained by, but are not determined by, their truth conditions. Moreover, it may be that there is no other way to say some truths than by using falsehoods to say them. In Aboutness, Yablo explores this linguistic phenomenon and defends the idea that we often go beyond what we want to say and then subtract from the whole of what is said to the part that we really care about, its subject matter. Let's tune in to the interview. Stephen Yablo, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Thanks for inviting me, Carrie. Uh, I am really happy to be talking to you about your new book, Aboutness. And this is, as you note in the introduction, a study in philosophical semantics regarding what sentences are about, which is not their truth conditions, but what you call their subject matter. And so it's a, it's a, it's an unconventional look at how we think about uh, meaning and semantics um, in which, as you put it, tr- we will often say truths that come wrapped up in falsehoods. Um, so let me, to, to kind of get us started, maybe you can say something about how, uh, how you came to this subject, um, maybe in general, if coming to philosophy of language um, and then, how you came to uh, the topic of this book in particular?
1: Let's see. Um, well, there's a kind of creation myth for the book, which I should I should probably relate. It's sort of true, which is um, <laughs> um, uh, my daughter Zena complaining, uh, "You never take me to Friendly's for ice cream anymore," and and my pointing out that taking her the day before with her friends on her birthday, and. A reply was, I wasn't talking about that, which struck me as a pretty lame reply at the time, but then the more I thought of it, the more it seemed to me that this is really an important part of communication on how we express ourselves, that we sort of don't just say things, we direct what we're saying to certain a certain subject matters, and we hold them our statements answerable only to what they say about that subject matter, and the way I came up, Against this issue, I guess, way back when was in philosophy of mathematics. I was one of the many people interested in the possibility that, you know, numbers and functions were playing an instrumental role in mathematical physics and that you shouldn't, as Quine uh, tries to um, act as though the physicist is, you know, giving us her word for it that there are functions as opposed to just using functions to convey something about the physical world. Uh-huh. And there's that word about, so the idea was to take that really seriously and to say there is a subject matter of the physical world. Um, you can say the number of, the rate of star formation is exponentially <laughs> declining. That makes reference to mathematical objects, but you weren't talking about mathematical objects, you were talking with them. Mm-hmm. And so so it was in the service of something like anti-Platonism in the philosophy of mathematics or, originally, yeah.
0: Okay. Huh. So um, maybe you could say a little bit, uh, you give some nice examples of aboutness. I mean, that was one that maybe, um, you know, when I was thinking about the book, I, I thought of uh, Toni Morrison when she called Bill, former Cl- President Bill Clinton our first black president. And that struck me, and maybe not you, but um, as... Uh, an example of somebody expressing something, talking about Bill Clinton, but saying with with a sentence that is, like, patently false about him. Um, would you – is that type of thing a good example of the sort of phenomenon that you are trying to get at?
1: I would so love it if it was. I'm
0: not sure
1: <laughs> it is, but the, the, I can sort of just think out loud about it and, and maybe uh, – well, actually, let me give you another political example first, and then I'll come back to it. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. Um, so this is an example from the uh, 1980 presidential debates, Mondale versus versus Reagan. Uh-huh. And, uh And Reagan had been making a lot of misstatements on the stump, and at a certain point a reporter asked him something about Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, and he said, I don't believe I've heard that name. It was the president of France. And uh, so... Reagan came into this debate with sort of reputation for having strong opinions about things he didn't really know that much about, and the, the uh, moderator asked uh,
0: Mondale, doesn't it bother you that um,
1: your, your opponent here um, uh, knows so little about world affairs? And, and Mondale answered, well, it's not what he doesn't know what bothers me, it's what he does know that just isn't true. Mm-hmm. The idea being that the concern wasn't was was more that Reagan thought he knew things that weren't in fact true. Well, this whole idea of knowing things that aren't in fact true it seems to philosophers like a contradiction because it's basic fact about knowledge that only only truths can be known. But you can still sort of see what Mondale was was getting at. He was talking about what you might think of as like the 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 part of knowledge that concerns sort of confidence and the feeling that you know, and so he was le- he wanted his um, Reagan knows things that aren't true statement to be understood as sort of addressed uh, to the subject matter of kind of confident feelings of knowing, not mm-hmm. necessarily knowing itself. I, I hope that treading water on that for a minute would give me an idea about about the Tony Morrison case, but I suppose first black president i mean the, the the kind of thing that you would try to do and i perhaps if you could t- perhaps that it doesn't work well self be instructive uh would be to say well in calling clinton the first black president you might not be speaking entirely about him but about his reception in the black community and about his ability to make to make uh people understood, to, to make people, people feel understood mm-hmm. and his sort of like uh kind of familiar, familiarity with the communities that he was dealing with. And um, so one could imagine that the statement wasn't really true. Of course, he wasn't, he wasn't black, but it's true about his presentation or about his reception or something of that nature, and that's about as far as I'm prepared to speculate about that.
0: Okay. Um, well, what are, one of the key concepts in the, in the book that you talk about is, is that of partial truth. Um, and that's kind of critical and um, so maybe uh, you can describe what that is. I mean it's it's you describe it at one point as uh, when there's a gap between the subject matter, what it's about, and what we might call the conventional truth conditions.. Of yeah. um, so could you say a bit about about partial truth first of all?
1: Yeah, well, so a typical philosophical problem has the the following form. There's certain things that we really want to see. They seem completely right to us and that we would be missing something important if we couldn't say them. Things like, you know, Pegasus does not exist. But on the other hand, although they seem right and we want to say them, we can't figure out how to make them true because in that case, you know, without Pegasus to serve as subject matter, it's not clear what the sentence is going to be About And so partial truth is kind of made for this situation. You've got these claims that you want to hold on to. People don't want to give them up. They can't figure out how to make them true. So so there's lots of different ways of dealing with this. There's error theory and there's fictionalism and metaphoricalism and so many other things of that kind. But this is kind of a a new way to do it that's sort of more conservative. Um, You're saying, look, maybe the sentence seemed true, because it's true about what we were talking about. So we didn't even notice it wasn't completely uh, true. It's like if I were to say uh, uh, the the astronauts, when they went to the moon, they landed over by the left eyebrow of the man in the moon. Mm. You might, you know, not think to yourself, well, that can't be right. There is no man in the moon. Um, You understand that this is a situation where – well, actually, that that probably is an example for, for for later on, now that I think about it. So the, the, here would be a typical example. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so, you know, if you ask someone their height, they'll usually give you a precise number. Yeah. Five foot seven. And there's this worry that, you might, that might occur to you, which is, well, I'm not exactly five foot seven. I mean, I'm a little bit less or a little bit more. So how do I get away with saying this? And a lot of a lot of semanticists have tried to find ways to get five foot seven to mean something else, like between five, six and a half and five, seven and a half. Mm -hmm. But a much easier way to approach this is to say, look, the sentence wasn't really being put forward as true full stop. It was being put forward as true about height to the nearest inch. It was true about my height to the nearest inch. Say that I'm five foot seven. And, um, a great way of conveying precise height information imprecisely to say that um, it's true about one of these sort of roughened or coarsened subject matters. And of course, as the conversation proceeds, you might say, oh, well, I'm 5'8 and a quarter. And then that will signal to me that you're actually talking about a more fine-grained subject matter than I had, had meant to be addressing, and then I'll take back maybe my claim that I'm five foot seven because I'm a little bit more than a quarter of an inch away from that. Mm-hmm. So there's this constant sort of jockeying for like, what are we going to be talking about and what standards will our statements be held to, which is pretty common part of pragmatics anyway, but this is just a particular theory of how to, how to understand the standards that statements are held to. It's a standard of being true about a certain matter.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, I mean, one are the, the pragmatics for I me mean, that you just mentioned i mean um uh you know one of the old ter- i mean okay so if we take traditional semantics you know or at least mainstream to be truth conditional um where the meaning of a word is just you know composed from the meanings of its parts the, and those each have their own kind of atomistic meaning um that they carry from context to context, and then this sort of alternative, you know, pragma- more pragmatic semantics or relevance theory um, s- tries to get away from that and say no, you know, the meaning is really highly contextually determined, um, and within that uh, newer tradition. Um, this idea that, you know, when you say I'm five foot seven, you know, I don't mean that I'm five foot seven. I'm talking about uh, some property that's actually a bit more vague than that. Um, how do you see that? How do you see your approach um, uh, in relation to the relevance theoretic idea that, you know, what we say just, you know, sort of what's, What's lexically encoded right in, in any particular word or sentence um, ver- it doesn't determine you know doesn't determine a lot of what um, is actually being expressed.
1: Yeah so actually it's that's an interesting um, question given the example that I gave because one of the sort of founding papers of relevance theory was this paper by Sperber and Wilson called loose talk right where they sort of give examples like, where you say what somebody's height is or where somebody lives in Paris for certain purposes, but not for other purposes. And, and, and what they say has a certain kind of similarity to what I say. They say, well, look, sometimes you might make a statement, not because it's correct itself, but because it has so many correct consequences. And as long as you can sort of get people to realize that it's only the consequences that you're speaking up for or advocating for, um, you'll, there's a tremendous economy of expression, and so to the extent that I mean, relevance has to do with economy of expression and using a little to say a lot, and, and, and so forth, um, there is there is a bit of a connection with with my stuff on partial truth. I guess I guess the the I guess the way to say it is this: the relevance theorists try to explain like a huge mass of fascinating phenomena. They do it with processes that are sometimes well understood and sometimes are just sort of schemas for processes. There's things like free enrichment where you just sort of build something up according to some plan that isn't really stated. And it's not, it's not always obvious what are the, why you can reach this by free enrichment, but you can't reach that. Those ground rules are a little bit unclear. So what I'm trying to do is get at least some portion of the goods that I suppose truth conditional pragmatics people yeah, but using something much closer to a sort of conventional means.
0: Okay, so, that's... Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was that, that was that was very helpful. Um, so so back to the question about partial truth because this you know your discussion of this you know goes through a number of of number of chapters. You um, you go through what is you know what is it what are true parts? How do they confer partial truth? On the holes, the sentences that they are um, part of, um, and you also suggest uh, the very interesting idea that that there are actually some truths that we that we can't express except uh, by uttering falsehoods, and and that that thought is part of what motivates this idea of partial truth. Hmm. So, could you could you tell us a bit about about those? you know, details about partial truth.
1: Yeah. Well, let me actually go back a tiny bit to Mm -hmm. how, how the notion of partial truth relates to this other notion, which is the notion just of a part, Mm -hmm. because um, the idea that I sort of start with is that of all a statement's implications, I mean, we usually treat statements implications as like, they're just, it's just a sort of homogeneous body of things implied by the statement. But, I tend to think that there's a difference between um, what you might call a consequence, feel, savor the full meaning of that word, something that comes after the statement, you know, something that if once you've got the statement, then this is brought along of necessity. Mm -hmm. And then there's this other thing, which you might call a presequence, which is something that already had to be true before the statement could be true. So a consequence of snow is white might be snow is white, or expensive, um, it's not as though you first have to establish that at least snow is white or expensive before you can make your way to snow is white. It just doesn't ever come up. Whereas if you have a sentence like snow is white and cold, it has the consequence that snow is white, but this is not, so to speak, logically downwind from snow is white and cold. It's something that better already be on board before you're in a position to say that snow is White and cold. So I'm interested in... I want to divide um, implications of a statement um, between those that sort of come after the statement and those that already had to be there before, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it's the ones that already had to be there before that I call parts. Okay. And so a conjunct would be a paradigm part of or, or an instance of a generalization. And then one of the tests for whether something is a part is... Um, ask yourself if it were true, would that reflect back favorably on the, on the whole? So if I say, um, snow is white and expensive, well, part of that might be snow is white. How do I determine that that really is a part? Well, if snow is white, then that seems to confer some kind of truth what I call partial truth on snow is white and expensive. It gets something right. Whereas if I if I take, uh, say, uh, um, say, snow is expensive, that implies snow is expensive or white. That implication is true because snow is white. But I don't say, oh, well, I guess snow is expensive got something right, namely that it's expensive or white. Because when I say snow is expensive, I'm not saying in part this random disjunctive consequence. Whereas when I make a conjunctive claim, I am saying in part the, the conjuncts.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, are there, are there, see, once you're working with conjunction and disjunction, it's, it's easier, I think, to think about parts because you're already, you know, constructing a sentence yeah. from simpler sentences or simpler predicates. Um, and I was thinking, could you do, is there an example where that's, it's, where it's not a, where it's a simple sentence, you know, atomic sentence, like, I don't know, you used before, you know, Pegasus, uh, well, Pegasus has wings. I mean, you didn't say that. I just did. Um, uh, would there, what would be the partial truth in that? Let me start with a, with
1: a, a, a simpler example, the philosophy of math example that I, okay. I, I mentioned before. So uh, there might be, you know, scientists might discover that there's like a certain ratio between planets and stars. You know, they say there's, there's uh, you know, 1.73 planets for every star. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Let me simpler one. There's a, uh, There's a one and a half planets for every star. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, you're using, you're saying, you know, this over this is one and a half. Um, There's a part that's, and of course, one and a half is a number, so the statement seems to be partly about mathematical entities, which wasn't what we were intending to be giving information about. And so the thought would be um, when you say the number of planets divided by the number of stars is one and a half, there's, a part of that that's just about the stars and planets, and it goes roughly like this: there are three planets and two stars, or there are six planets and four stars, or there are etc. All the ways in which you could have one and a half times as many stars and planets. And if you write that kind of thing out logically, there's no occurrence of number words anymore. You can just <laughs> write that with you know with first-order quantifiers. And so, so um, here's, a, here's a, a, a way to picture it. Um, so a statement is, is true about a subject matter. Subject matter, which I didn't say yet, is kind of understood as something like a relation between worlds, the relation that one world bears to another if they're kind of just the same mm-hmm. with respect to that subject matter. So the subject matter of the number of stars. Is a relation that obtains between two worlds if they have equally many stars. And the way you um, the way you should think about truth about a certain subject matter is: here's this statement. It's false in this world, but could you make it true by morphing the world in a way that left it unchanged with respect to that subject matter? Is there an equivalent world?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, where it's really true. So suppose this is a nominalistic world, and I say the ratio of planets to stars is 1.5. That's false, because there is no 1.5. But is it false because of how many stars and planets there are? Well, the test would be, could you have a world that was just like our world, with regard to how many stars and planets there were, but where it really was true that the ratio is 1.5? And the answer is supposed to be, well, yes, all you would have to do is sort of add numbers to the world. If you add numbers off to the side, then you can use them to count the objects. And now it becomes really true that the number of stars divided, uh, planets divided by the number of stars is 1.5. That's not the most interesting example from your point of view. I haven't forgot about that, and I'll come to some more interesting ones in a minute. But that's the basic picture. Uh, a is true about subject sentence. A is true about subject matter. M. If A could be true compatibly with how matters stand with respect to M,
0: mm-hmm.
1: A is false, but not because of the world's M condition. The world's M condition is not the problem. Um, okay, so, um, what are some other examples? So, one um, that I give this is leading up to the non-existence uh, cases. This is old puzzle of um, of Geach's. The Hob Knob puzzle mm-hmm. uh, where there's these two farmers, Hob and Nob, and you know, Hob thinks a witch burned down his barn, and Nob thinks she, that same witch, blighted his, his mare. And the problem here is, um, on the one hand, that can't be right because there is no witch. It can't be right. If you were trying to sort of quantify over the witches on the outside, you can't analyze it as there is an X such that X is a witch who burned down Knob's barn and then blighted Hobbes' uh, nair. But the thing is that in order to have the sort of what each calls the common focus between Knob's beliefs and Hobbes' beliefs, it seems like you need a single thing that they're both thinking about. But that would be, again, the existential quantifier on the outside that we can't have. So on the one hand, we need an existential quantifier on the outside to get Hob and Nab, to get the part of Hob and Knob's story whereby they're thinking about the same thing, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can't have it because there is no same thing that they're thinking about. So this is one case where we might try to use partial truth as follows. You say, as follows, you say, look, that statement was not entirely true because it involves there being a witch and there wasn't a witch. But let's look at the part of the world that begins just after the witch was supposed to have done the initial deed. So a fire did start in the barn, which Hob blamed on the witch. Let's leave out the moment where the fire was started and just and just look at the fire and everything after. The claim is that the Hobnob statement could be true about the fire and everything after. In other words, our world could be one that differs from a world where it really is true that Hob thought a witch burned down his barn and Not thought she blighted his mare. Uh, the only difference between those two is that we add a witch at the beginning before the fire in the other world. In other words, all you... The only obstacle so to speak to the to the literal truth of the obnann statement is that there was no witch at the beginning. Well, there was no witch at the beginning so we're stuck we can't make it true in our world but we can at least convey that it was true about events since the witch the alleged witch in our world by pointing out that we could make it really true by just installing a witch right before the fire starting starting the fire.
0: Let me let me just uh, let me just ask a question because one of the things that You know the the various examples you've been giving have all involved um, you know objects or or putative objects I should say in the in the case of in the case of numbers um, or a witch or Pegasus or you know that kind of a thing Um, and so one one of the thoughts that I had when I was when I was reading the book was um, was about states of affairs. You know, things that are wider, you know, bigger, or in some sense um, just more encompassing than objects, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, just a very general question in terms of the metaphysics of what it is that subject matters are, Um, you don't really introduce um, states of affairs, and they seem to be... uh, they, they seem to be something that would be part of the mix in terms of su- subject matters um, so do you do you leave them out for any reason or do, do you leave them out at all so tell me if this is
1: what what you're asking so the examples that I gave so far of partial truth the the false bit that had to be taken away involved not every example but some of them involve the existence of something mm-hmm. like numbers in the one case or the witch mm-hmm. in another case. And so I didn't, except for the loose talk example do much to indicate how it would work. If you were abstracting away in a non ontological dimension.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so I could give examples like that if you wanted or I could tell you how something like states of affairs just sort of figures in the in the mechanics of it.
0: I think the latter is more what I what I'm interested okay. in. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. So David Lewis had a theory of subject matters way back when. And he introduced a notion, I mean they were entities in their own right, like the number of stars was a subject matter or what I did last summer would be a subject matter. Mm-hmm. And they correspond roughly to sort of ways of carving up logical space according to the different numbers of stars, different things I did last summer. He, he, he then had to bring sentences into the picture. I'm working up to states of affairs or mm-hmm. facts. Uh, he then had to bring sentences into the picture, and he said the following. He said, a sentence is wholly about a subject matter. Basic, if its truth value supervenes on how matters stand with respect to that subject matter or where that subject matter is concerned. Mm-hmm. So the number of stars is prime is wholly about how many stars there are because if you fix how many stars there are, then there's no further variation possible in whether the number is prime or not. Mm-hmm. And the problem he came up with was that, while that sounds fine in that case, um, it's in the nature of sort of supervenience... Claims that if you expand the base, then you still get supervenience. So not only is, uh, say, the number of stars is prime, wholly about the number of stars, it's also about the number of stars and how many cats there are, and the number of stars and what I did last summer. It's also about how everything is in every respect whatsoever, like the <laughs> maximal subject matter. Mm-hmm. And that seems bad. Yeah. So it seemed like Lewis has got a sort of a one-many relation between sentences and subject matters, there's a whole lot of subject matters that they're wholly about. And so my, my diagnosis of this was that when you say that a sentence is wholly about a subject matter, you could read the holy as playing one of two roles. The, the first is um, there's nothing in the sentence that isn't addressed by that subject matter. So the subject matter is, so to speak, big enough to handle all the factors that are pertinent to the truth of the sentence. Mm -hmm. But the other thing you might mean is there's nothing in the subject matter that is irrelevant to the truth of the sentence. In other words, the one thing is the subject matter hasn't all you need to figure out whether the sentence is true. The one he misses is it has only that it only addresses issues that are relevant to how and why the sentence is true. And this, so, so you could, you could put it like, like this. Um, here's how I think of the subject matter of a sentence. It's like, uh, it's like, um, just as you have the notion of like, whether a sentence is true, Mm -hmm. you can have the notion of how it's true. A disjunctive sentence might be true by way of its first disjunct or its second disjunct, or maybe even the both the both together. Now I'm coming up to states of affairs. So, what is this notion of how a sentence is true? Well, it's, it's fairly close to what people talk to under the heading of truth makers. Right. Um, there's various, supposed to be various particular constellations of events in the world that are singled out as, spe- you know, particular, peculiarly relevant to how and why a sentence is true. So, one way that you could State. So one way I like to think of subject matters is kind of you look at a great big map of logical space and there's sort of contour lines in the map that are sort of showing you when things are changing with regard to how the sentences are true. But another way to think of it is just as um, subject matter of a sentence just is the set of its truth makers. It's all the different reasons the sentence could have for being true where you don't add an extra stuff, which is not really relevant to. um, So, so, so if the sentence is Sparky, that's my dog has a friend. Mm -hmm. One truth maker would be jazz is Sparky's friend. It's not a dog. Mm -hmm. Here, here, here would not be jazz is Sparky's friend and sleeping right now. That would not be a truth maker for Sparky Has a Friend because it has this extra junk in it sleeping right now mm. that's of no relevance to how it is that Sparky Has a Friend. So there's some notion of proportionality. You, you want to find a state of affairs that sort of contains all of what you need but no more than what you need to, to say how a particular world contrives to make a sentence uh, true.
0: Okay, so um, so then how do we uh, – I mean – how do we narrow down the subject matter so that it has just one? How do, how do we hone in on the one that we want?
1: Yeah. Well, so that becomes the, the question of, you know, what are the different ways a sentence can be true? And there's two answers to how we, we do that. One is um, we kind of postulate that it's done. And then apply it in a bunch of different areas and then see what the requirements of those different applications are for how how you do it. And so I'm somewhat open to that possibility. There might be different ways of doing it for different issues. Mm -hmm. So um, for some issues, you want logically equivalent sentences to have different subject matters. For other issues, you might might not. Um, So if you're interested, say, this is one of the, applications in the book uh, uh, in the, uh, verisimilitude, which is this concept introduced by by Popper. <laughs> thought all scientific theories were false, but nevertheless they were getting closer to the truth, or they might get closer to the truth, and verisimilitude was his word for the quantity that increases as they get closer to the truth. You might think that logically equivalent sentences should agree in verisimilitude. Uh, and so for that application you want their truth makers to be the same. If you're going to be using truth makers and subject matter in your account of verisimilitude. Ver- there are other kinds of applications where, um, like um, conversational implicature, where you actually want to have differences. So for example, here's a puzzling phenomenon. If I say, um, if I say someone asked me what I had for dessert, I say I had cake or pie, that normally is taken to suggest that I didn't have both. Mm-hmm. and um, but, here's, but here's what's, what's odd. The equivalent to having cake or pie is having cake or pie or both. The truth tables are just the same because it's an inclusive or. Mm-hmm. So, but if I say I had cake or pie or both, I'm no longer implicating that I didn't have both. So there's these two logically equivalent sentences, P or Q, P or Q or P and Q that differ in, 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 in their implicatures, and you can explain that um, you can explain that somewhat in terms of, of truth makers. I'm just gonna assert that. And, and, the, and then you wanna have a separate truth maker uh, for the conjunction in the case of P or Q or P and Q. If you're interested in the problem of like logical omniscience, you might wanna say that um, you know, P or not P is true for one reason and q or not q is true for another reason different logical truths will have their own reasons for being true stemming from their sort of compositional structure and the ways that their atoms become true and and failure to recognize logical equivalences could come from the fact that you can't quite work out whether the exact set of facts you need uh, to make this sentence true is the same set of facts that you need to make the other the other sentence true, but that requires that truth makers are, are cut more finely than than, than uh, logical uh, equivalents. Anyway, there's a bunch of different examples in the book of where you might and where you might not. So confirmation paradoxes, for instance, I would want to say that the truth makers for you know all ravens are black are different from the truth makers for all non-black things uh, are non-ravens. Mm-hmm. And this connects up with the idea that their subject matter is different, which connects up with the idea that their parts are different. So it may be part of all ravens are black, that this particular specimen here, Rudy the raven, is black. But it's not part of all non-black things, are non-ravens, that this particular raven here, Rudy, is black. And this is supposed to help with the problem of uh, the paradox of confirmation, because oftentimes when we're interested in, in inductive confirmation... We want to have. We want our evidence not just to make the hypothesis more probable as a whole, but we want it to sort of pervasively probabilify the hypothesis. In other words, that I, if I find a black raven, this is a point that Goodman made, I don't just want to say, "Oh, well, at least here's one raven that isn't a counterexample to all ravens are black." I want to be able to increase my expectation that the next raven I find will be black as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, inductive confirmation basically is probabilifying not just a statement, but also all of its parts. So if you have logically equivalent statements that differ in subject matter, subject matter figures in the definition of parts, they differ in their parts, that would explain how their confirmation relations could be different even though they're logically equivalent. So I'll say it, I'll say it one more time. Ravens are all ravens are black, all non black things are non ravens. Right. They're logically equivalent. The first is about ravens, the second is about non black things. Mm-hmm. Okay. The parts depend on what they're about. Mm-hmm. The parts figure in the confirmation relations of its inductive confirmation, and so that's why the differences in aboutness can affect their confirmation properties. Yeah.
0: And let me just to. Um I, I hope this is not a bad question, but um so truth makers and subject matters uh have to be distinguished.
1: They're 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 just they there's two there's several notions of truth makers flying about. It's one is an unusual one. Okay. So it's this uh, so usually people talk about truth makers sort of in, in metaphysics and they 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 try to evaluate metaphysical theories on the basis of whether you can find facts in the world that would decide whether the relevant kind of sentence would be, would be true. This is a completely semantic application of, of truth maker. So it's sort of like, I'm not, I, 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 I'm interested more in, you can think of truth in this setting less as sort of the prior things that make a sentence true as sort of it's different ways of being true. So one way for you know there are dogs to be true is for Sparky to be a dog. Another way is for Jazz to be a dog.
0: Yeah.
1: So these aren't facts on a different like metaphysical level. They're just sort of just as there's different this is this might be misleading, but just as there's different ways of you know swimming, the backstroke, the crawl, and so on and so forth, there's different ways that can be true that but you're swimming. One way is you're doing the backstroke. One is you're doing the crawl. These truth makers are kind of like that. They're kind of semantical in nature, and that kind of suits them for use in a theory of subject matter, the, the hope is. So the subject matter just becomes really the set of truth makers and ultimately the set of false makers as well.
0: Okay, so um, later on in the book you get to the, the concept of a, of a content part and um, an inclusion relation for content parts, um, and you, you use um, a principle that you call the uh, upward difference principle. So maybe you could explain what that, what that part of the book is about. Yeah. Okay. I actually
1: got into some trouble about this recently, so I'm going to try to steer around the trouble. Um, so the thought was this, you know, I define something as a notion of part, um, I call it content part or logical part. Um, I didn't so far consider the question of whether it's rightly so called. You know whether that's a good good name for it. What does it have in common with other notions of part that we're more familiar with, like material part, or maybe David Lewis's notion that a set is uh, part of um, its supersets, the ones it's uh, contained in. And so this upward difference transmission principle was an attempt to find a sort of thread that went through all the different notions of part, mm-hmm. some of them extensional, some of them intentional. The idea was this. So one way to think about a material part, say, why, why are the handlebars part of the bicycle? Well, if you were to change the handlebars intrinsically, like by, say, heating them up, you would then have changed the bicycle intrinsically too bicycle can't stay intrinsically just the same while its handlebars are being heated up just because they're part of the the bicycle. So that's what I call upward difference transmission. You change the handlebars, you change the bicycle. You can't change the handlebars and leave the bicycle as is, and that's supposed to be um, closely tied up with why we think of the handlebars as part of the the bike. Mm -hmm. Does that make some
0: sense? Or? It does. I'm not sure I entirely agree, but keep going. Uh, oh, well, well. if I, I wasn't if, going if, for that, <laughs> I was going to say if if you know if one atom you know started moving more quickly in the void, an atom that we would consider to be a part of the bicycle, and yet nothing would happen to the bicycle as a whole, we might, you know, I mean, that's not going to be why we think of it as a part of the bicycle. The fact that we can change its behavior without changing anything about the bike itself, the whole bike.
1: Yeah, I guess there are two ways you could, that's a good example. Um, There are two ways you you could go on that. One is just to say, well, I'm talking about any kind of change on the the bicycle. And this is, you know, not one that would attract anyone's attention, but it is a change. But another, another thing that, This is something I'm somewhat attracted to uh, is to say, uh, well, look, you know, the particle is in the bicycle, but it's not a part of the bicycle, you know, for the same reason that like my heart is in me, you know, I'm on the faculty uh, at MIT, but my heart is not on the faculty uh, at MIT. So it might be that there's different sort of levels yeah, so, uh, you know, where your parts have to be somewhat at your level. They shouldn't be at a lower level
0: of reality. Right. There's just different
1: ways of talking about it, I guess. Right. Right.
0: Um, so anyway, um, you, yeah. have, so you yeah. have to continue. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, so, um, let's now try to apply that kind of notion. I'm creeping up on the notion of content part. Uh, let's try to apply that to Lewis's idea that, uh, Uh, a smaller set is part of a bigger set, like the set of even numbers is part of the set of, uh, natural numbers. Um, and the thought here would be, it's not that easy to make sense of this. If A is a subset of B, then if I switch a member of A out for another object, then I will have switched the membership of B as well.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because yeah, all the members of A count into the membership of B. Um, then I switch to something I like, try something like property inclusion so why is why is um, red and square? why does that property include the property of being red or why does the property of being a vixen include that of being a fox? and here what propagates up is the way in which these properties are possessed so if something becomes so fox is part of vixen because if something becomes uh, comes to be a fox in a different way. So if you imagine it, I don't know exactly what a different way of being a fox would be, but you could imagine it, say, um, becoming a twin fox as opposed to sort of a monozygotic uh, fox, um, then um, that would change the kind of vixen it is as well. A better example is this. Um, charge is part of, in a sort of intensive sense, part of positive charge. If a thing changes in charge from one to three, hmm. then it's positive charge can't stay the same. It has to change how it's positively charged when it changes how it's charged, supposing that it is positively charged. And then it's supposed to finally apply to the idea of, um, of uh, content part. The way I officially define it is, you know, A includes B, if A implies B, so the, in, the argument A, therefore B, is truth-preserving, but it's also aboutness-preserving in the sense that the subject matter of B is contained in the subject matter of A. And given the way subject matter is defined in terms of uh, truth-maker, that winds up being pretty much the same as saying B is part of A if you can't wiggle how B is true in a world without wiggling how A is true in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, um, but
0: not a causal
1: wiggle, right, right, not a causal wiggle, it's a manner wiggle,
0: okay, the, the manner of its truth, yeah, okay um, uh so uh once you have your content parts um, then you talk about subtraction is another important relationship uh, you know that you go into from the idea of expressing getting out a subject matter by expressing something, and then, uh, as you put it, I think you put it, um, you're sort of dialing back in some way, subtracting from uh, maybe some formal truth-conditional way of interpreting the sentence to what it is about. Um, so could you explain yeah. the subtraction relation and its relation to content parts?
1: Yeah. Um, so this is something that sort of, comes up unacknowledged in philosophy a lot. Someone will define X and say, well, it's just like Y, except abstract away from that aspect of Y. So if I were going to explain to you, say what scare quotes, courageous behavior was, I would say, well, it's courageous behavior, but scrap the part about it being thereby admirable or good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's the descriptive component, so to speak, of, of, of courageousness. Um, If um, Chalmers somewhere defines uh, a judgment as a judgment that P is a belief that P stripped of any phenomenal implications, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's like to enjoy the, and to have the belief. Um, Wittgenstein probably has the most famous example. He says, um, you know, what is left over if you subtract from a man's raising his arm, the fact that his arm went up Mm -hmm. and the suggestion seems to be maybe, it wasn't what he thought, but people have taken it that way that, well, that's how you get intentions. That's right. where intentions come from. Right. Yeah. And the, this is very, these are very treacherous waters because um, you can't just assume that whenever a implies B, there's something meaningful left when you subtract B from a. So, you know, scarlet implies red, but if I said, well, Let's let's scratch the red part. What does scarlet, so to speak, add to red? What's the extra bit? And it's very very hard to to say what scarlet adds to red. Kind of presupposes redness. There isn't like a separable sliver that you can say. Well, then you you take that sliver and then you add it to redness and you get and you get uh, scarlet. Uh, there's this um, there's this uh, story I told a joke that I told in a in the book that kind of captures it pretty well, where somebody asks, I think it was supposed to be Einstein in the story, you know, how, how the telegraph system works. And, and he says, Oh, well, it's just like this, you know, imagine there's two, there's a big dog and its head is in Minsk and its tail is in Pinsk. Can you pull the tail in Minsk and it barks in, in, in Pinsk. And the guy says, okay, I get that. I get that. What about the wireless telegraph? How does that work? And, Einstein supposedly says, it's the same way, except without the dog. Yeah. Hmm. And that feeling of like, well, wait a minute, I don't have any foothold left here if I take away the dog, is one that I think philosophers should have more often than they do. Uh-huh. They kind of often tend to assume you can just subtract things away. And so you find, like, say, Shoemaker and Parfit, and giving sort neo-Lockean theory of personal identity, will say, well... You can't define it in terms of memory because, as Reed said, or Butler or one of those guys, memory presupposes identity and so it can't be used to define it. They say, okay, we'll just have a thing, quasi-memory, which is just like identity, except, right. sorry, quasi-memory, which is just like memory, except the rememberer and the rememberee don't have to be identical. Right. And it's sort of assumed that we kind of know how to carve that part off and what is going to be
0: Well, Well, this, this comes um, up in... Certainly, philosophy of mind with narrow content.
1: Yes. Uh,
0: And I think Kim, uh, trying to think of an example from that, Kim uses it with knowing, you know, sort of the difference between knowledge and belief, probably is something along these lines.
1: Yes. uh, Where
0: a knowledge, where a belief state is a knowledge state, uh, well, a knowledge. But no, belief state is is a knowledge state minus the you know external part or something like that.
1: Ah, uh, right. Um there have been a number of moves along along those those lines. The one I was thinking of is um kind of says somewhere that w- warrant is what knowledge adds mm-hmm. to, to belief. Something like that. Yeah. You have yeah. Um and he just sort of takes it for granted that there, there is such a thing. Um, so the, the, the way the narrow content literature used to work until, I think, Williamson it in the direction of knowledge, which is also interesting, um, was people would just look at sort of wide content beliefs. So, you know, you believe that water is plentiful, but the identity conditions for that belief sort of depend on there being water out there in the world. And it might seem that you wanted a notion of belief that um, was neutral on what was out there in the world, because you might think, for example, you wanted a notion of belief that was suited for discussions of rationality and rational inference, and rational inference should not have a hostage to fortune out there in the world. And so one might try to say the following, you know, you believe that water is plentiful if, sorry, you narrowly believe that water, water is plentiful if you believe it, except there might not be any water, or subtract The implication that there's water. And, um, so that kind of attempt was made for a number of years. And I think what eventually happened was probably one of the first times it was realized that this maneuver, um, is treacherous and has sort of presuppositions. Um, if you you think about believing that water is, is plentiful, um, It's not clear that there aren't very many limits on what internal state you could be in and still be believing that water is plentiful. You could just be believing of anything that you catch sight of anywhere in the distance, that it's plentiful, where that thing is unbeknownst to you water. There isn't going to be any great intrinsic similarity between all the people who are looking out there in their environment and thinking that something or other is plentiful. and But that's all you're left with if you try to get the narrow content by that wrapped. So generally speaking, what, what, what happens is um, um, either you can't subtract the, the, the thing you're supposed to at all, or when you do, you're left with, with much, much less than you had uh, supposed.
0: Yeah. So, um, so to get back to how this fits into your subject matter um, analysis... How does the subtraction work there? How do you have it work? Okay, so
1: here's the connection. I talked about the part of a hypothesis about a certain subject matter, Mm -hmm. M, call it. Subtraction is defined in a corresponding way as the part of hypothesis A that is not about a certain subject matter. I've got A, it's got an implication B, there's a subject matter of whether or not B, whether B is the case. And you can define in general, just to see you can define what's left of A when you just focus on uh, the part about a subject matter. You can also find what's left of A when you focus on the bit that isn't about a subject matter. And A minus B just is that portion of A which is silent on the issue of whether or not B. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole logical definition of how this works involving sort of humongous diagrams of logical space and more arrows than you could count. But that's the, the basic idea. So so to um, if you wanted to take away truth from knowledge, you'd you know you'd say, well, what is the strongest implication of S knows that P? Mm-hmm. that couldn't care. It's neutral on the issue of whether or not P. And there might or might not be a, a useful thing that remains. As in the Wittgenstein example, there probably isn't a useful thing that remains. And the idea that uh, the intention could make up the difference is probably not right at all. Um, so, but that's, the, that's the, the kind of approach. So there's, there's, there's sort of parts about a subject matter, parts not about Remainders, A minus B, are parts not about whether, it's really not a part, portion not about whether B. Silent on the issue of whether or not B.
0: Right. Well, yeah, so silent on the issue is not quite not about.
1: Well, if the subject matter is whether or not B, uh-huh. that just is the issue. Uh. yeah So if it's silent on the issue of whether B, that's just the same as not being about the issue of whether B.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um. Well,
1: orthogonal. It's orthogonal. Or or
0: yeah. yeah. So I think we're we're running out of time. I just one one last question because we were you mentioned um, knowledge and one of the one of the chapters um, in the book uh, discusses a distinction between knowing that and knowing about. Um, and so I was just maybe wonder, wondering if you could briefly say something about um, uh, what you say about knowledge attributions that seem to care about subject matter um, above and beyond caring about truth conditions. So here's
1: here's uh, an observation about counterexamples or reported counterexamples that have been given to closure of knowledge under known implication. Um, they all involve an implication that brings in new subject matter. So say, I am sitting by the fire. That implies that I'm not a bodiless brain in a vat. But of course, I'm sitting by the fire isn't at all about bodies or brains and vats. This is a zebra, so it's not a cleverly disguised mule. The conclusion brings in new subject matter. So that was sort of my entering wedge. Why is it you get failures of closure when new subject matter is brought in, but never as far as I can tell when the subject matter is, is contained? And the answer is supposed to be that, again, subject matter is kind of an amalgam of ways of being true and ways of being false. And without putting too fine a point on it, to know something involves knowing your way around its subject matter a little bit, which means sort of in the case of the ways it could be false, uh, uh, being well it doesn't, doesn't really actually matter what the relation is that you that you postulate here, it all comes out the same but maybe being on guard against those ways of being false or being such that those ways of being false wouldn't explain how you came to believe that P despite its uh, being wrong. There's also, knowing your way around the subject matter also involves not being too mixed up about why the belief is true, because truth makers play a role as well. Mm-hmm. And so in Gettier cases, you typically have somebody who's mixed up about why the belief is true. So I see some very weak structural conditions on what an account of knowledge would have to look like that, ha- that have the consequence that any account of that form is going to find Implications that introduce new subject matter potentially problematic because to introduce new subject matter is something like uh, introducing new ways of being true and new ways of being false. You could have been on top of all on top of all the old ways, Mm. but you're not on top of the new the new ways. Um, So, so here's here's an example of Kripke's. He says, "Look, uh, I know I locked the door." Uh, it falls from the fact that I locked the door, that um, any evidence to the effect that I didn't lock the door is misleading. And so then it might seem, if you know that any evidence is misleading, you should just ignore whatever evidence comes along, although that's a further claim. So the subject matter of the first is, you know, whether I locked the door, something about me and the door. But the second is a whole different thing. It's about bodies of evidence that might be out there in the world, okay? Mm. I have no idea what kind of evidence might be out there in the world against the hypothesis that I locked the door. But it would seem like I would need to have some idea that there wasn't too much of it or it wasn't sort of overshadowed by the pro-evidence in order to feel like I could conscientiously claim to know that I locked the door. But this is how the problem arises. On the one hand, it would seem like I ought to have some control of this because I I don't want to be blindsided by huge amounts of evidence to the contrary I didn't think of, but I don't have any control over it. I have no idea what evidence there is. It's that feeling of disconnect from the new subject matter that creates the epistemic sort of unease that leads us to feel that we don't know. I think.
0: Huh. That's an, that's interesting. Um, uh, well, I, 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 I'd like to pursue that, but I think we're sort of getting out of time now. Um, so let me just ask a final question about, um, uh, what your next project is or what you're working on now?
1: I am thinking about relations between subject matter, desire, and conditionals. And a little bit obligation too, which has some of the same puzzling features. There's, there's various sort of um, strange... This business about closure actually is very relevant to it. You know, you can desire something without desiring its consequences or even things logically equivalent to it. So maybe my dog is lost. I want to find my dog. Finding my dog is finding my dog dead or alive. Those are the only two conditions a dog can be in, but I don't want to find my dog dead or alive. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So something to do with new issues being raised, the dead and the alive carve up the same space differently is going to affect your sense of what you, um, sense of whether you still desire the thing. So I'm interested in uh, the relations between sort of desire and the ways that the thing desired could obtain, and and also the thing like obligation and the ways that the thing obliged could obtain, and permission. I mean, David Lewis raised this puzzle about permission many years ago. You know, suppose that uh, I'm the boss, and you were ordered to work all week, and then I say, you can take Friday off. And Lewis says, well, look, I've permitted... Some worlds where you take Friday off, but which ones? Not ones where you take Friday off and use it to burn down the store. Not ones where you take Friday off and use it to break into my house. But somehow that's understood, but it's not clear how it's understood. And it's related to the the notion that when you say a thing, there's certain ways for it to be true that are kind of pertinent and others that aren't pertinent. What I really would like to understand is, the line, a t- line is drawn between pertinent ways for something to be true and ones that you would never think of and shouldn't think of, even though they really are ways for the thing to be true. And I think that relates to conditionals and desire, as I said, and also to stuff in deontic logic. Uh,
0: yeah, and a uh, I would think too. Right? I mean, we we only utter, we only say the things that are yeah. enough. Yeah, right. In some way. Yeah, and if, that's right. And if you leave
1: out words, the shorter. The expression of the thought is the more stereotypical the uh, instance is supposed to be of what you're talking about. An example of, uh, of, uh, that I got from a linguist is, if I say, you say, where are you going? I say, I'm going to the school. That could be to the kid's school. It could be a school where I'm giving a talk, blah, blah, blah. But if I say, I'm going to school, I leave out the the. Right? So I'm, give you, I'm giving you less clues about what's going on well, that tells you that it's a more stereotypical thing. I'm going to my school. I'm going to the school I always go to. And so that is, there's some kind of some kind of center of gravity for ways that things can happen that our thinking sort of uh, is attracted to that I think resolves a lot of the sort of, what otherwise would be the sort of um, ambiguity in statements that people make. And I'm just interested in how that works.
0: Great. Uh, well, I think we should... Uh We'll probably have to close this now, but um, I appreciate your taking the time to, to talk with us about your new book.
1: Thanks a lot for asking, and thanks for the great questions.
0: Okay. Bye-bye. So long. You've been listening to an interview with Stephen Yablo, professor of philosophy at MIT, about his new book, About This, just out from Princeton University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.